Every big war is different from the last. Ukraine's war with Russia has furnished several evolutions in conflict, some of which we shall be getting to shortly. But not the least of them is the combination of verite footage shot by the protagonists with social media. This has enabled real-time analysis of events from people who have themselves led armies and commanded invasions. One of the more informed commentators on this, or indeed any war, is this week's special guest. In 2003, General David Petraeus led the 101st Airborne Division of the US Army into Iraq. He was later the commander of the multinational force in Iraq. In 2010, he was given command of US and ISAF troops in Afghanistan. After retiring from the army in 2011, he was appointed director of the CIA. In this special episode, David Petraeus, also a recent visitor to Ukraine, offers his reflections on nearly a year and a half of what Russia imagined would be a lightning conquest of no more than 72 hours. Was Russia's plan doomed from the start? How differently do you see this conflict when you've been a general and an intelligence chief? And how has this big war changed the way the next big war will be fought? This is The Foreign Desk. President Zelensky's first two and a third years in office were solid but not extraordinary. He had not been able to achieve the reforms for which he'd been elected. But all of a sudden, here he is, this positively Churchillian figure who gets the big ideas right, an extraordinary strategic leader. Forecast of a strategic leader, you have to get the overarching strategy, the big ideas right, you have to communicate them effectively through the breadth and depth of your organization, if you will. You have to oversee the implementation of those big ideas, and then you have to constantly determine how you need to refine them to do it again and again and again. And he has done this magnificently. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller, and our special guest this week is General David Petraeus. General, first of all, let's look back a few weeks to the recent apparent attempted mutiny by the Wagner Group in Russia. When something like that is happening, Yevgeny Prigozhin's abortive march on Moscow, what is the mood like among intelligence agencies and the people who lead them? Are they just as surprised and bewildered as everybody else? Unnecessarily. We know from intelligence community spokespeople and so forth who have provided to the press accounts that indicate that they had information that something like this was being planned. And so when it did take place, I don't think that there was surprise in the community. You know, there may have been amazement that something so bizarre might have been launched. Keep in mind that Prigozhin saw certain developments as existential to his control over at least the portion of Wagner Group that was fighting in Ukraine, and also over very substantial sources of revenue. The Ministry of Defense had mandated that all soldiers in groups like the Wagner Group, but especially the Wagner Group, but there are others, there are also other irregular forces on the battlefield had to sign contracts with the Ministry of Defense by 1 July. And in essence, this threatened Prigozhin's control of his forces because it meant that the Ministry of Defense was going to be paying them directly rather than through him. 
And it also was going to cancel certain contracts that it had with Prigozhin, which enabled him to field this force. And as we understand it, to pay them more than Russian soldiers were paid, a considerable amount more, maybe as much as twice as much. So he was in a somewhat desperate state of mind. It also, it seems to me, been suffering from the burden that leaders have who have seen very substantial numbers of their soldiers killed. He was irate about the, what he termed the inadequate support of his group of his forces by the Ministry of Defense. He'd been highly critical of the minister personally and of the long-serving chief of the general staff, uh, General Grasimov. And right before he launched this, he even criticized vehemently the launch of the invasion, this latest invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin, without mentioning him by name, and criticized very strongly the way in which the war was being waged. So these, again, at a certain point in time, these almost become suicide gestures. And it speaks to his state of mind, which was beyond desperate, that he would then launch 4,000 soldiers on a long convoy to Moscow with the idea, apparently, to apprehend, detain the Minister of Defense and the Chief of the General Staff, and then presumably negotiate better terms, which is just fantastical. Can you imagine, you know, a British general who's disgruntled about how the Ministry of Defense has taken care of his forces, and so he launches 4,000 of them towards London? It's so bizarre and so absurd except, you know, this is the Russian Federation. Well, what sense do you get of how Ukraine's high command is handling things at the moment? I think very impressively. You know, this is a high command that has defeated the Russians. They won the Battle of Kiev. They won the Battle of Kharkiv, the second largest city of Sumy and Chernihiv, two other northeastern cities. They oversaw their forces retaking all of Kharkiv province, they took the Russian elements that were west of the Dnipro River and Kherson province and forced them to withdraw east of the river. And they are now in the process of carrying out a counteroffensive that is grinding, it's slow, it's methodical. It is not blitzkrieg, but you can't blitzkrieg against these very, very substantial minefields, belts of minefields, trench lines, and other obstacles. You have to just work your way through them. And I think they have rightly recognized that they can't, again, conduct yet the kind of maneuver offensive that they'd like to conduct with their new Western tanks and infantry fighting vehicles and artillery and rocket launchers and so forth because they just don't have the breaching capability to enable them to blitz through this. It would take a massive quantity of armored bulldozers. And ideally, you'd like to have much more air capability than they have. They have very minimal close air support and certainly don't have air superiority. And you'd like to have, again, a, a fleet of drones that's that can withstand the Russian electronic warfare that has been used fairly effectively to try to suppress the Russian 
dismounted soldiers, their infantry, but also their artillery, which are making life very difficult as you are trying to pick your way through to breach these very lethal anti-tank and anti-personnel minefields. The good news is that the Western tanks and infantry fighting vehicles generally, even if they're knocked out, they are mobility kills, not catastrophic kills, as is the case with most of the Russian tanks. These turrets blow off, one of the signature wounds of the war for the Russian side, because of a design deficiency still not fixed that does not have a blast door between the turret, the inside of the turret, and the ammunition compartment. The crews survive these encounters, even if in some cases the vehicles are at least deserted, abandoned, or perhaps lost. But they can't do what I think they'd hope to do, and I think a number of us hope they might be able to do if they can find an opening, which is to really get the battlefield moving by a breakthrough that then forces the Russian forces to have to reposition and then perhaps start to crumble and maybe even collapse. Because again, the Russian units are no longer coherent. They're not cohesive. They didn't train together. They're a patchwork of individual replacements. They don't have a non-commissioned officer corps, but they're dug in and entrenched and obstacled very impressively in the South in particular. But they are grinding out gains. And at some point, they will work their way through these obstacles. And what they've decided is essentially to just set the conditions, to attrit the Russian ammunition depots, fuel depots, other logistics sites, uh, headquarters, reserve force assembly areas, individual artillery units and pieces, and those that are on the trench line, in the trench lines, so that when they finally get to the point where they can use this maneuver capability that they didn't have before and achieve combined arms effects, that means, in other words, combining all of the arms together, tanks, infantry, artillery, mortars, air defense, engineers, electronic warfare, logistics right up behind them, and then follow-on forces, so that when that moment comes, that they can exploit it. But I think they are rightly going about this, given the defenses they face and the limitations they still have, despite having a much larger tank force now than they did when they started the war, in contrast to the Russians, who have well less than half the tanks that they had when they started the war. I'm just wondering if much about the way this conflict has unfolded has surprised you. Looking at it professionally, as someone yourself who has commanded armies in at least two foreign theatres, if you think back to last February, did you think Russia's plan, leaving aside the morality of it, was actually militarily viable? Well, first of all, I was one of the few that that I didn't think they were going to take Kyiv, much less control it. Number one, I know Kyiv. I know what armies can do in the defense. It's a sprawling suburban area to the north and east and really around the entire city. If they could avoid some kind of catastrophe in the early days, which in fact the Russians sought to achieve by having essentially their special operations forces targeting Zelensky and other key figures, and then going after that airfield, Hostomel, that's just to the northwest of Kiev, that if they could avoid that, that they had a very good chance of being able to withstand the Russian offensive. That was before we recognized the 
poor campaign design of the Russians, the inadequate organizational architecture, the way they basically established the command and control. They, again, attacked on many, many axes simultaneously rather than focusing on the main effort. They clearly hadn't trained during the periods that they were deployed on the borders of Ukraine and Russia and in Belarus, which is particularly astonishing given I remember preparing for the invasion of Iraq as a two-star general division commander of the Great 101st Airborne Division. I mean, we were training every minute that we had. And here the Russians clearly hadn't even mastered very basic tasks, such as staying dispersed when you are in a column, in a movement, such as getting off the road, such as deploying from your vehicle so that you can't be surprised by folks in the woodline, on and on. All of these are just very, very basic skills that the Russians clearly had not mastered. And this is before we realized that the much vaunted Russian modernization plan hadn't been all that substantial, that individual capabilities that are crucial, such as secure frequency hopping radios, they hadn't purchased. Uh, They were using HF, which broadcasts very widely, is very easy to intercept, single channel in the clear, which means that any, any Ukrainian with a police scanner, and there were plenty of them, could identify it and then jam it just by transmitting on top of it or record it if this, the individuals were criticizing their commanders, and then, of course, upload it on social media. So there were many additional deficiencies that emerged in addition to the ones that we actually knew about. I mean, we've always known that they don't have a professional non-commissioned officer corps the way that we do in our armies. They have a very top-down command and control system and culture. You wait to be told what to do. You don't generally exercise initiative. Then we discovered, again, that this modernization that they touted wasn't all that much and that they were largely fighting with systems that would have been what we would have faced had the Cold War turned hot when I would say a major deployed in Germany as a brigade operations officer on the inter-German border. That's what they've been fighting with. And that, again, is just sort of astonishing. So there were some deficiencies that we were keenly aware of, and then there were some that just weren't so apparent that were a bit surprising. And when you put all that together, not a surprise, especially if you actually understood how the Ukrainians had transformed their forces. And I did. I'd been in Ukraine after President Zelensky was elected just before COVID. And a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and I met not just with their Pentagon, the Ministry of Defense, the the minister, the chief of the general staff, all the other notables in the Pentagon, their Pentagon. We then went to Kharkiv and visited the headquarters for the Donbass, the area that was the front lines of that particular war. And then we went to the brigade headquarters of one of the sectors. And then we actually went to the front lines. If you did that, you came away realizing that these are not the soldiers that we knew in the past. This was a different army, and it has transformed even farther since then with extraordinary leadership. And I think that's another very positive development that could not have necessarily been anticipated. President Zelensky's first two and a third years in office were solid, but not extraordinary. He had not been able to achieve the reforms for which he'd been elected. But 
all of a sudden, here he is, this positively Churchillian figure who gets the big ideas right, an extraordinary strategic leader. You know, a forecast of a strategic leader, you have to get the overarching strategy, the big ideas right. You have to communicate them effectively through the breadth and depth of your organization, if you will. You have to oversee the implementation of those big ideas, and then you have to constantly determine how you need to refine them to do it again and again and again. And he has done this magnificently. It's hard to predict how someone will actually be as a leader when the bullets start flying. I've seen this on the battlefield as well. Individuals I identify that I thought this guy is going to be extraordinary turned out not to be so. And then the guy that was the quiet, not quite the chest pounder and everything else turns out to be the standout. So in this case, again, you see something very positive for Ukraine. And then frankly, I'm not sure we could have predicted that, what is it, 16, 17 months into this war, the United States would have provided $41 billion worth of arms, ammunition, and material, that Germany would be providing lethal weapons to another country for the first time in its post-World War II history, that U.S., and U.K., and other leadership would have kept the alliance very much together, prevented Putin from driving a wedge between certain European countries in between Europe and North America, etc. So it's not a surprise that a lot of folks didn't get it right, especially when you add in then one other, I think, cultural predisposition that you see in intelligence organizations at times, and that is a sense that, you know, you sort of can't go wrong by being pessimistic. <laughs> and in this case, uh, it turned out that optimistic would have been the right call. But that is a little bit counter to, again, just the predisposition of those in the intelligence world. Those qualities of leadership that you mentioned, I guess, are kind of an eternal, a fundamental of how war is fought. You have an upcoming book with Andrew Roberts, Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. What lessons do you draw from what we've seen so far about how this conflict will shape the next major conflict? What's new about this one that you're seeing? Well, first of all, is actually the enduring importance of strategic leadership. I think that's a common feature. And throughout the period that we examine, for example, 1945 to Ukraine, you see some great examples of that. George H.W. Bush, who gets it brilliantly right in two occasions. The obvious one is Desert Shield and Desert Storm, the liberation of Kuwait with General Schwarzkopf as his battlefield commander and General Powell in the Pentagon. And then prior to that, a year earlier or so, you had the invasion of Panama, where he had General Thurman as his battlefield commander, and again, Powell as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. A wonderful case study is the case of Sultan Qaboos in Oman and his British, the generals supporting him from the British together with his own. But And of course, he was a Sanders product as well, so he knew a bit about the military side of it also. You see an example of the opposition, getting the enemy, if you will, getting it right. The North Vietnamese leader and his general, General Jop. And then you see examples of it not going right. Frankly, you have the U.S. leadership in Washington during Vietnam, at least up to Nixon and Kissinger. And you see Westmoreland in particular, who just doesn't seem to understand the type of war that 
they are fighting and try to make it another type of war. In other words, instead of conducting a comprehensive civil military counterinsurgency campaign, which, by the way, the South Vietnamese wanted to fight and recognized they needed to fight for all of their deficiencies, and there were many, he nonetheless made it a war of big battalions, the war of attrition, which was not a war that the U.S. and South Vietnam could win. And again, there are many other of these kinds of examples. Ridgeway in, in Korea is another striking example. And then within Iraq and Afghanistan, given their duration, you have periods where we didn't get it right pretty clearly, especially, for example, you know, once we've toppled the Saddam regime in Iraq, some catastrophically bad decisions that make really almost create the conditions for the insurgency that follows. I'd like to think we got it right during the surge. I mean, the, certainly the metrics, when you drive violence down by nearly 90% and pull a country out of a sectarian civil war, that indicates something that we got reasonably right. But then you have Afghanistan, where it took us nine years just to get the inputs right. And by inputs, I mean the right big ideas, the right strategy, the right organizational architecture to pursue that, the right resources, particularly military, the right people, the right preparation of forces, the right equipment, material, infrastructure, et cetera. So the central importance of strategic leadership, I think, is something that emerges in repeatedly throughout our book. In Ukraine, what you see is largely, again, the Cold War turned hot. This is not the war of the future, but you do see glimpses of the war of the future, and they continue to emerge incrementally because they are associated with capabilities that we are providing to the Ukrainians in particular or that the Russians are getting, say, from the Iranians in the case of the Shahed suicide drones, or they are capabilities that the Ukrainians are fielding themselves. They have enormous technical and mechanical and engineering know-how, and you're starting to see initiatives that they have taken emerge. But the war of the future is going to be one that is increasingly unmanned. It is going to be unmanned systems on not just in the air, but on the ground, on the sea, subsea, outer space, cyberspace, and not just remotely piloted, but increasingly autonomously piloted, again, driven by the algorithms where the human in the loop will become the person who designs the algorithm, establishes the conditions that the machine must meet to take certain actions, some of which could include lethal action. So, that is going to be the future. It will be a future that, as in Ukraine, for the first time, will have the ubiquitous presence of smartphones, internet connectivity, and social media, which have changed the nature of this war as well, at the very least, the transparency and the ability to follow it. If you assiduously track this war through all the different means are available, including aggregators that pump to you all of these different social media posts on whatever sites they may be, including Russian ones, follow Telegram as well as all the others. Again, you can actually have a feel for this war in a way that I think is unique. This is not necessarily, again, the war of the future. The war of the future is finally going to see the 
emergence of a world in which the Cold War adage, a Cold War adage that we used to recite, that we couldn't really operationalize, but we nonetheless, you know, thought. So we, it went, what can be seen can be hit, what can be hit can be killed. The truth is we couldn't see all that well. We didn't have anywhere near the intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance platforms and assets that we have nowadays. And of course, it's not just stuff in the sky, it's stuff in cyberspace, it's stuff in various other media. And we certainly didn't have the ability to hit stuff that was on the move. We didn't have dynamic targeting the way that we do now. But, you know, in a future war, say peer competitors, everything can be seen, especially huge platforms on the surface of the sea. Everything can be hit. In many cases, increasingly, it will be at hypersonic speed that maneuvers before it impacts. So it's very difficult to defend against, and therefore everything can be killed. So that is what is driving the transformation that is still in the early stages, but is taking form. That's the future of warfare at the high end. And again, Ukraine just shows glimpses of this. Again, the drones are relatively modest in their capabilities. The Precision munitions are of limited range. You know, the longest range we have provided now is about 150 kilometers. Your storm shadow goes further than that. Perhaps we'll provide an Army tactical missile system, ATACMs, that could take it out to 300 kilometers. That's not, again, hypersonic intercontinental kind of capability that is available already and is going to be even more available in the years that lie ahead. General, just finally, you referred earlier to the importance of the United States assistance to Ukraine in money, material, and indeed global leadership. Do you fear that there is a potentially a clock ticking on this, that were Donald Trump to be re-elected towards the end of next year, that that might leave Ukraine high and dry? Well, first of all, that, even if he were, and I think it's very much in question, I mean, there's many, many dynamics out there, not the least of which are additional legal cases and a variety of other developments that could very significantly impact this. And I generally don't do domestic politics, so I'll just also then just note that it would be, if you do the math, I think it's 18 months from now that the next president will take office. So it's quite a long period of time. You know, you have this entire summer offensive, you have whatever happens during the winter, you have the next summer offensive. That is an eternity in this warfare. Beyond that, the Republicans on Capitol Hill, by and large, are quite supportive. Yes, there is an element within the Republican Party in the House that questions support to Ukraine. And yes, on the campaign trail, there's questioning about this. But by and large, you know, the <laughs> longstanding leaders of Senate on the Republican side are among the biggest supporters of Ukraine. Senator McConnell, the minority leader, Senator Lindsey Graham and others, they're staunch advocates, and they are determined, for example, to ensure that there is a supplemental defense budget once they work their way through the defense budget for the fiscal year that starts in one October, that will include substantial support for Ukraine. And it helps that there is this small $6 billion accounting mistake that the Pentagon made that allows them to actually have $6 billion more than they thought because they were 
calculating the cost of what we were providing at replacement value rather than present value. And so that's quite helpful as well. General David Petraeus, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.